Greetings. This is The Filter with Matt Asher. Patrick French is a leading biographer, historian, and commentator on South Asia. His work has appeared in publications including The Economist, The Sunday Times, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and The Financial Times, and his books have won numerous prizes. Today's discussion will be focused on his very first book, Young Husband, The Last Great Imperial Adventurer. Patrick, welcome to The Filter. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm glad to join you. I'm glad you are joining me. Young Husband is Francis Edward Young Husband, born in India in 1863 to British parents. He lived for 79 years, and in those years, he was part of many of the era's most important events. He is, in my view, the most interesting and important person from recent history who no one has heard of, at least where I grew up. Before we get into his life and do our best to understand how he saw the world, can you start us out by talking about how you came to know Young Husband and describe your own journey to write his biography? Well, I was very young when I first had the idea of doing the biography of, of Young Husband. I had traveled to Tibet, China, India as, I think, a 19-year-old university undergraduate. I was at Edinburgh University studying English literature. And I got interested in the late colonial period in South Asia, and in particular, the invasion of Tibet from British India in 1903-1904, which up until that time had always been referred to as an expedition, young husband expedition. Uh, But it was basically an invasion in that more than 10,000 troops and support staff went across one side of the Himalayas to the other in order to reach uh, Lhasa, the Tibetan capital. And so I was just, I was curious about him, about Young Husband, because he was representative of a certain phase of the British imperial project in that he was somebody who started out as a soldier uh, and as a spy, an adventurer, but in later life, in the 1930s, 1940s, became a believer in free love and Indian nationalism. And he somehow seemed to span that rather remarkable phase between the 19th and the 20th century, when a lot of different ideas about empire could be embodied in a single person who transformed themselves during the course of their life. So to me, it wasn't so much that he was ever going to be famous, although I guess he's more famous since the the book was published. It was more the fact that he was emblematic or representative. And through that one individual, you could tell quite a large story about how European imperialism, or specifically British imperialism, functioned. And, And the reason why, rather sort of bravely at the age of 20 or 21, I thought I'd do his biography was simply because I found the archive had just been catalogued into a library in London. It's now part of the British Library. At that time, it was part of the India Office Library and Records. And I think there were about 680 boxes. And I remember just thinking, wow, if I'm going to write books, which I was very keen to do at that time, I'm never going to land on such a remarkable unused set of papers, letters, diaries, as this. So that was how the book came about. And then in order to write it, you not only looked at those particular documents, but you spent uh, some time retracing his steps as well. Well, I did. I mean, it was a kind of quite fashionable thing in the, when would it be? It'd be the late 1980s, this idea of method biography. I remember being inspired by people like biographer Richard Holmes and Michael Holroyd and others, the idea that you kind of set out in pursuit of your quarry and you somehow, by going to their house or following them on a particular route, you'll, you'll begin to understand them better. So there were, there were sort of elements of that in the book, that sort of idea of the romantic biographer following the subject. At the time, that did seem very important to me, but probably in retrospect, the more remarkable thing is the, the archival material. And, and like you're saying, it wasn't only what was in the India Office Library and Records. There were also other private collections. Maybe towards the end, we might, we might come on to the fact that I found the letters between him and Madeline Lees, who was his friend or girlfriend or lover. Well, actually, probably not lover, but very, very close friend at the end of his life. 
and some of those had been sort of blanked out and I was luckily able to decipher what was beneath the blacked out ink in order to tell part of his story. So, you know, he's very much from that that era again, the 19th, 20th century, when physical paper archives, letters that people wrote back and forth between each other, sometimes on a daily basis, can give you an extraordinarily rich biographical sense of how ordinary lives were lived. I think there is something there in not just perhaps in that era, but in his life itself that invites you to go out and retrace his steps. I had the same experience reading his work that I wanted to do that same Gobi Desert crossing. And there's something, especially the early young husband, there's something contagious about that spirit. I don't, I couldn't find the exact quote, but I remember he said something like uh, talking about the Gobi. I'd never been in a desert before and here were a thousand miles to cross. Right, yes. And this was at a time when no Westerner had done it. That was the zeal with which he, and spirit of adventure with which he approached things. Right. I mean, he was sort of quite physically small. He was quite wiry. He was a very fast runner. He was extraordinarily physically strong and resilient. I mean, there were periods of months on end when he was living in or or traveling through parts of the Karakorums or the Pamirs where he was at temperatures of sort of minus 30 and day after day. And somehow he always got through every physical challenge in this kind of quite vague, almost quite foolhardy way where the idea of physical danger or risk was just something that he he just sort of dealt with. And the journey that you're describing when he went through the Gobi Desert, that led to him discovering a new land route between China and India. But I mean, it wasn't really a land route in that it was almost completely physically inaccessible. So what he he basically discovered is that it would not be possible for an invading army. You know, probably at that time, it would potentially have been a Russian Tsarist army coming sort of around the edge of China into northern parts of the British Indian Empire. He basically showed that that route was not accessible to anybody except for mountaineers. I uh, I think we'll probably get into the aspects of Russia here, but before, just wondering if you could speculate a bit on what it is about that particular era or mindset. He wasn't the only one who was willing to do that same thing in terms of putting himself into a fairly high level of physical discomfort for a goal. It seemed like there were a lot of adventurers at that time and naturalists like Darwin who were willing to do things that we look back upon. And it's clear that they had an attitude towards physical discomfort that is very not modern as of now anyway. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there was a different attitude towards physical danger, risk, indeed to fighting and to war and to the way that people, for example, when you read accounts of people in World War I, have this extraordinary way that they sometimes write about their own body parts being shot at or you know, even shot off as if this is just sort of part of life, which is, in today's terms, really hard to imagine. And there are all sorts of explorers in the 19th and a little bit in the early 20th century. And they might have come from a variety of backgrounds. They might have been British, like Young Husband, although he was born in in Marie in what's now Pakistan. They might be Hungarian, they might be Russian. They might be from northern India, the group who were known as the Pandits, who were people from the hills, the sort of lower Himalayas in India, who went again on these two, three, four-year journeys of investigation in order to draw maps. It is very hard to picture today. And if you wanted a kind of crossover point, it would probably be the the fact that when George Mallory, who was one of the mountaineers on the very early expeditions up Mount Everest immediately after World War I, which Young Husband organised, when George Mallory's preserved body was rediscovered, I think it was in about 1999 from memory, but I may be wrong about the date, 
on the slopes of Everest. And the, the mountaineer who, who discovered it said he's, he's, he was wearing about the kind of thing that I might have been wearing as I walked around the streets of Seattle. <laughs> so even going up to 29,000 feet, people were sort of taking physical risks in a way that now is very hard to picture when everything is planned and engineered and thought through in a different kind of way. Certainly a lot of that is just a different appreciation for risk and the need or indifference to physical discomfort. I think part of it too might have to do with the idea that you are on a journey or doing something that is important, not just for yourself, but certainly in the case of young husband, for your country. Part of his mentality had to do with that, no? Um, A bit. Things like when he decided that he was going to go across the Gobi Desert and see whether he could go down through Baltistan, Kashmir, discover this new land route. There was certainly a kind of prestige attached to it within Britain or the British Empire at that time. But it was more the idea of personal adventure than anything else. I mean, he, he was patriotic in a fairly obvious way that was very typical of the late Victorian period in England or in the United Kingdom. But I, I don't think it was motivated mainly by that. It was more just this sense that any kind of challenge or any adventure, he would do it. And if you look at what he did a little bit later, when he went up into, you know, what is today Xinjiang in Western China, again, you kind of think, what, why did he decide to do that extra 70-mile journey when he got frostbite? And he sort of did it for fun. He did it for adventure. Part of the context, as you mentioned, was Russia. Could you talk about what the great game was and how that factored into Young Husband's travels? Right. So this was particularly important. And I think that if, you, if you're going to sort of conceive of what the great game in, in the mountainous regions of Asia was, you have to think in terms of the fact that borders or boundaries between nations or nation states or empires were very fluid. And today, really in you know, whatever country you go to anywhere in the world, since World War II, the borders or boundaries between countries have been very clearly defined. And there have been a lot of conflicts. There's even conflict going on at the moment between India and China over that same border. But they're always designated and delineated on a map. And people might argue about whether the border is three miles this way or three miles that way. But in the time when Young Husband was operating, let's say the 1880s or 1890s, it was very vague. It was very unclear. Instead, you had spheres of influence, which by the time you get to, let's say, the 1890s, when he becomes a key player in the great game, you have these three big powers. One is Tsarist Russia out of St. Petersburg. One is Imperial China out of Peking. And the other is the British Indian Empire out of uh, Calcutta at that time, or ultimately out of London. And so you have China, Russia, England competing for control over territory, competing for influence over regional leaders. And very often the way that people would take territory was through a single adventurous person with a handful of soldiers or even just a sort of small military escort quite often encouraged or egged on by somebody like, for example, the Viceroy and Governor General of India, Lord Curzon, who enabled Young Husband to do things that maybe were not fully authorised from London, from Whitehall. And then he was up against people like, for example, Colonel Gromchevsky, who was an envoy of the Russian Tsar, who again was taking over territory, bribing or cajoling or persuading local rulers to be on his side or be on the Tsar's side. And often the people who were the players in the great game didn't fully know what they were doing. They sometimes didn't even know physically exactly what the land was that they were potentially taking. Sometimes it would appear that there'd been an advance and then it was impractical to actually retain any territory so you'd go back, not be left with very much. So so it was like a kind of constant game or war, or as the Russians called it at the time, it was a tournament of shadows. The great game is a term that was used by Rudyard Kipling, in fact, for something slightly different. But I think it's a fitting way of describing this kind of shadow power play between big global 
geostrategic imperial forces at the end of the 19th century in Asia, in High Asia. One of the interesting things to me about Young Husband, we've alluded to this, is that the the world is very different at the beginning of his life and the end of his life. And it's hard for us now to put ourselves in the mindset of yes. before the empire begins to end and going out and conquering more lands is natural. There's no stigma in the kind of mid-1800s yet to just deciding, well, here's a territory, it's occupied by some native peoples, why don't we go take it? And it's a purely sort of cost-benefit analysis as opposed to some kind of a moral calculus. Yes, I think that in a way, the advance of European powers into different parts of the world during the 19th century was often brutal and bloody. But apart from the invasion of Tibet in 1903-1904 that Young Husband led, most of what he did, in fact pretty much all of what he did, was about small expeditions with a military escort in order to go somewhere and make a, a kind of symbolic representation. He would often be accompanied by this sort of performative thing of having ornamental swords, he might have evening dress, he might have a cocked hat, he might have things that enabled him to appear as this symbolically representative figure of the British Empire in some remote part of Kashgar or Hansa or Chitral, areas that are sort of on the borderlands between today's Pakistan, Afghanistan, Western China, Northern India, those kind of areas. But it was it was normally a symbolic thing. And it was really only the military engagements on the way to Tibet that were closer to what was happening more generally in other parts of the world. But just to sort of hone in on, on the, the point that you're making, I think that if you look at the way that territory was taken, particularly in the later 19th century, it was very often encouraged, interestingly, not only by the British government, but also by Queen Victoria herself personally writing to military commanders in the field saying, you know, if you're able to advance into this territory and take this land and incorporate it into the British Empire, it'll probably be for everybody's benefit in the long run. And what is interesting to me about that is that Queen Victoria was somebody who was extremely interested intellectually in the shape of the British Empire that was expanded in her name. She knew a lot about India, but she had never actually been to India. Her travels were occasionally to, to France uh, or, you know, occasionally to Scotland. But she didn't know any of these places like India or like South Africa. And yet she would write to the people there saying, take more territory because it'll make the British Empire larger and that'll help to make the world better. And even in her view, a more peaceful place. So it's this kind of bizarre thing where there was this often very brutal military expansion taking place in countless different territories by Britain and by other European powers, particularly I'm, I'm thinking now in the sort of the, the second half of the 19th century, but it was done with this lack of understanding of what the actual implications were for the people who were living there. I think that that's certainly right, though I think it's also important for us to look, as we look back at colonialism, it's easy to just put it in the bucket of, oh, that was horrible, and move on. But I think it's worth in terms of getting into the mindset of people back then to understand that there was an argument for it and there were a lot of people whose lives did improve after the British Empire took over. It wasn't just a unilateral win for England and loss for everybody else who lived in that particular area. There were certain benefits that came with being part of the empire, no? One thing that I, I do try to get away from in writing about or studying imperialism is this idea that is very popular at the moment of a cost-benefit analysis, that you get people saying, you know, is it good or was it bad? Which is a sort of irrelevant question because you immediately think, well, was it good for this group or that group? Or it, 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 it was such a huge part of the 18th and 19th century that it's very hard to make those kind of approaches to it. But what I would say is that although there were 
elites in particular countries that certainly benefited from it and were very much sort of collaboratively part of the imperial project. And even, in fact, many of the nationalist leaders in a country like India, in the earlier part of their career, someone like Mahatma Gandhi, they believed in imperialism as a political doctrine before moving against it and becoming nationalist. I think you'd be quite hard-pressed to find countries where you could say that there was a kind of net overall benefit to the people who were being colonized. I mean, certainly if you're the colonizer, you tend to get rich. Britain in the in the 18th and 19th century became one of the richest places in the world, largely because of the benefits of empire. But if you look at what was happening in South Asia, in India, and that's the bit that I know best historically, you're looking at prolonged famines. You're looking at a lot of people being made into indentured laborers and being sent off to other parts of the world you're looking at massive social disruption and that's even you know leave, leaving aside other questions if you go back a little earlier around slavery global slavery and and the extent to which that was being run at least in the 18th century you know largely out of the british isles so i don't like the cost benefit analysis approach to imperialism but Equally, I think it, it's really quite hard to look at countries that were colonized and say, here are all the people who are getting an obvious benefit for it. And even if you just look in a, in a very sort of transactional way at the economic side, you can see the wealth of India going down and down and down during the period when British power was spreading across the subcontinent. Interesting, interesting. Just to follow up on that in particular, that a lot of the places that were invaded, they weren't paradises. And in fact, and maybe we'll get into this as we go on to talk about his invasion into Tibet, you describe it in the book, there was a ruling class there and they were the monks, the spiritual leaders, and they had these robes with long sleeves. And the long sleeves were to represent the fact that they didn't have to do any physical labor. They were, based on your descriptions and some other ones, right. I've seen almost like a feudal society with lords who are not expected to do anything but take their, their cut of the people's grain. It, it, not to say that the evasion made things better. It certainly made things worse for the troops there temporarily, but that it's not like all of the invasions or adventures were in societies that were sort of egalitarian utopias. That would be a terrible justification. Then we could start to talk about, you know, all sorts of countries in the world which are not egalitarian utopias in 2020, and therefore should they be invaded? Certainly fair enough. Just pointing out that the simplistic view that we have of these as places where everything is going beautifully until the empire showed up, not necessarily the case. What you're referring to, I think, is the way that Tibetan aristocrats, and particularly the Lhasa aristocrats, used to have these long silk sleeves, which went about sort of 10 inches beyond the wrist. And that was a kind of symbolic thing, as if to say, my hands would never need to come out of here in order to do manual labor. So I guess, you know, probably in contemporary times, there would be certain things that people would wear, which would indicate that they're unlikely to be doing the doing the laboring. Uh, and, you know, and of course, there, there are various... Uh, 20th century revolutions when one of the things that got people executed was having very soft hands which indicated that you were an intellectual rather than a worker so <laughs> you know, I think any of us who, who spend our time being academics or writing books we always have to be conscious of our soft hands when the revolution comes <laughs> uh, for sure and let's certainly hope there's no new cultural revolution on the horizon to sort of set the stage here for this moment when young husband is headed off to Tibet yeah um he, you know, he, he's doing what it seems to me looks a little bit like something you might call military tourism. Yes. Yeah, maybe you could then just set the stage for his excursion into uh, Tibet. Yeah, military tourism is, is quite a good way to describe it. I mean, I think, I think what Young Husband didn't fully appreciate when he first began what would be an invasion, in quite a small way, with I think about 200 soldiers and support staff going up through Darjeeling, through northern Sikkim, into the sort of southwestern corner of Tibet. Uh, he thought at that point he would do a negotiation, and that would be it. He would make a treaty and he would come home. 
And then he gradually got more and more permission, or, you know, more and more latitude from the Viceroy, Lord Curzon, and more and more troops came. And once they crossed the uh, Jelapla into Tibet proper and were very clearly on the Tibetan plateau, then I think everybody realized that logistically it was going to be incredibly complicated because they would need a supply line that brought everything from food to clothing to wood to burn in order for them to cook food. So there was this, this sort of supply line that took them eventually up to Shigatse, Gyantse and to Lhasa, the Tibetan capital. And it sort of just got sort of bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally, when with great difficulty after a sort of massacre effectively at a place called Chumishengo at some hot springs where you had on the one hand a very primitive early machine gun uh, in fact there were two machine guns which were cooled with rum rather than water because the temperature was so low that water was freezing you know it was like a sort of precursor 10 years before the outbreak of World War One, when rather late World War One, there were early machine guns, there was early photography. And they were against Tibetan troops who were very poorly trained, who had matchlock rifles or who had stabbing daggers or swords. And there was a, a massacre at Chumashengo. They then pushed on to Shigatse. They, they managed to conquer the fort at Gyantse, and then they got to Lhasa. So they're in the Tibetan capital, and it's like, right now we will negotiate and we will impose a treaty on the Tibetan people in order to you know, establish the British imperial presence. But of course, the Tibetan government was mobile. You know, they came out of a nomadic tradition. And so the Dalai Lama, the 13th Dalai Lama, fled out of Tibet to Mongolia. And so you had this bizarre situation where young husband and his military escort all dressed up, had nobody to negotiate with. And so they did somehow manage to cobble together a treaty they got the Tibetan government to pay them for the cost of being invaded. It's one of the very bizarre things about these invasions in this period, is that if you invaded a country, you then build the country for being invaded. And amazingly, the Treaty of Lhasa of 1904 resulted in a theoretical final payment from the Tibetan government to the British government in 1979. So it was pictured as being something that would last really through the whole of the, the 20th century. And anyway, out of that, they got the political links into Tibet. They, they got the right to make trade markets and so on in Tibet. And relations were established between the, the two countries. So it was a kind of, it was a sort of grand military escapade without any very definite strategic purpose. Um, and just one other thing to mention is that the ostensible reason for the invasion at the very beginning was the fact that Russian troops, Russian guns were in Lhasa, and that as part of the great game, it was essential that the Russians were stopped. And it in fact turned out that when they, when they, when they reached Lhasa, there were only a grand total of three Russian-made rifles. So it was rather like weapons of mass destruction that everybody thought they were going to be there, but actually they weren't there. And a bit like our present day where everything is a Russian conspiracy. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, I hadn't thought of that. Yes. I, I certainly thought about that looking back over it, uh, that, you know, there's always the excuse of, of Russia. Um, so as Young Husband is doing this and he's, he's pressing ever further onward, he is obviously very intent on moving forward. He's a, a restless guy and a very motivated guy. But back home, they're not necessarily so happy with him continuing to drive forward more and more. Again, you know, talking about the complexity of imperialism at this time, one of the things that you get in a lot of uh, different countries, you get this in France as well, is the way that when the government changes, the idea of foreign and imperial policy or colonial policy begins to change. So what you had in this case was a liberal government being voted in, the Tory government being voted out. The liberals say, well, you know, why on earth have we invaded Tibet? What are we going to gain from this? What is the point of it? Let's uh, repudiate most of the terms of this treaty. And so the whole thing becomes a little bit pointless, really. I always find that very intriguing, the way that there was no monolithic view of empire in the early 
20th century. And this, this runs really up until the period of decolonization in the 1950s and 1960s. You get different politicians in the House of Commons in London with completely different ideas about what imperialism should or should not do, about what was acceptable and what wasn't. And if you had a general election, new prime minister, new foreign minister, new colonial office minister comes in, they might say, well, you know, what my predecessor did was crazy. Let's now change the policy to this or to that. It seems interesting to me, looking back on this period of transition away from colonialism, and as it gets less popular, that perhaps, ironically, one of the reasons that colonialism fell out of favor was that it just became too easy in the sense that the military power disparity between the colonial powers and the native powers is just off the charts. You mentioned that large gun that had to be alcohol cooled. It's a massacre what they do. And that is starting to not sit so well with the even the people in the home country. I think that by the time that you get to, let's say, the period of the invasion of Tibet, 1904, 1903, 1904, that was almost the last time when you had that level of disparity. If you go back maybe about 30 years previously, and you look, for example, of the conquest of the Ashanti people in Ghana, what's what today is Ghana, and you look at General Garnet Wolseley going there, that again was an example of a complete disparity leading to a massacre. But really, by the time that you get to the early 20th century, it starts to even up a bit. You also get a, get a situation where different European powers like Germany or like Belgium are starting to rise. So really, by the time that Young Husband is in action, you, you can say with the benefit of hindsight that British imperial power is beginning to decline. And this is partly about things like how big your navy is, or what the economic situation is. And really surprisingly early, I think it's uh, the mid-1920s, from then on, imperialism uh, or empire becomes loss-making. And you have to be a you know, big-time believer as a politician in the idea of empire to do it, even if it's losing money for your, your country. And you then sort of get the, the culmination of that being the immediate post-war period when really a lot of money is being ploughed into these sort of early post-colonial projects where there's the idea that there's a, a sort of affinity between different bits of what was then starting to be called the the Commonwealth and that it could be in the words of uh, Frederick Lugard, who was a, you know, one, another of these figures like Young Husband of that time, could be seen as revenue neutral. In, in other words, it didn't matter if it made a profit or a loss because it had some kind of larger political or, or moral purpose. So I, I think really from about the time we're talking about onwards, the possibilities of imperialism become restricted, quite apart from the rise of nationalism in a lot of different countries around the time of, let's say, World War One around about 1916. So whether it's Ireland or or Mexico or India with the Jallianwala Bagh massacre or Egypt, there are a lot of countries where the nationalist movement against the colonial power starts to really take off. Then again, puts another kind of challenge to the people back in the imperial capital of you know do do we actually want to face down these opponents with troops? Do we want to put tens of thousands of people into prison, or do we try to reach some kind of political accommodation? So Young Husband does this attack, this uh, assault on Lhasa, and he comes away with this treaty that ends up being basically not worth much. But on a personal level, he's done some kind of military version of what many Westerners do where they go to India or Tibet or whatever to seek for something spiritual. So he goes there, a lot of people die, he signs a long treaty, but then he comes away with this little bronze statue that's important to him. I mean, I, I think that he is kind of emblematic of that, 
Although I guess that that thing of people who would go to the East in order to find themselves spiritually, again, is something that's a little bit later. It tends to be more post-World War One. If you look at I remember the name of the protagonist of um, Somerset Maugham's story, the, the Razor's Edge, who after World War One goes to an ashram in India and wants to find the secret of the mystery of the universe from a particular guru who he goes to. And that was a you know a big thing in the 1920s, 30s, 40s in particular. But as you say, in Young Husband's case, it's strange because it's connected to this emblematic figure, this bronze figure that has been given to him by what in Tibet is called the Gandan Tripa. In other words, the Tripa or the throne holder of Gandan, which is one of the great three great monasteries of Tibet, who was one of the people who had negotiated the settlement. So young husband has this uh, bronze image. He puts it into a saddlebag. He rides on a horse above Lhasa onto a hill. And, you know, there are, there are hills on the edge of Lhasa. And he has some kind of overwhelming religious or spiritual or mystical vision, which makes him decide... I am never going to do any harm again, ever, to any living being. I'm going to devote my life to mystical realization and linking myself to the Godhead and to the divine and so on. And then for the rest of his life, he goes off on a spiritual path. Whenever he is sitting at his table or at his desk, he always has this image of the Buddha sitting in front of him when he dies in 1942 in England the image of the Buddha is placed upon his coffin when he's taken to be buried in a graveyard in Dorset in the west of England. So maybe he's the first one to have that kind of a westerner spiritual enlightenment after a trip uh, to the east there are others. I mean, there's also the, the the sort of movement around theosophy and the Krish- and Krishnamurti. I mean, it was a an phenomenon at that time. I mean, I think you still get it a bit today. You get people, you know, traveling in search of the mystic East. But I guess as Asia gets richer, the the equation looks a little bit different. So I think in 2020, people are more thinking about, you know, are we going to be ruled by Chinese strategic or economic power or, uh, you know, what we do about the fact that the Indian economy is growing faster than ours. And I think that that, you know, maybe to an extent knocks the the, the mystical equation out of people's uh, perception of the East. So this changes young husband forever and mysticism becomes a very large part of his life. But there's other adventures as well. And the uh, uh, Mount Everest also becomes one of the most important things he does, the expedition there. How did that come about? He had a friend, uh, a guy called Charlie Bruce, who he knows in the 1890s, and they say, wouldn't it be amazing to climb to the very top of what appears to be, they weren't even totally certain, but, but what appears to be the tallest mountain on Earth, Mount Everest, and they map it out and they, they plan this. And then in about 1918, 1919, Bruce, young husband, and a few others who are within the orbit of the Royal Geographical Society in Kensington Gore in London decide how about sending off some expeditions to see if we can get to the top. So they do one in 1919, another one in 21, another one in 1922, another one in 1924. And there is the possibility that George Mallory and Sandy Irvin reached the summit in 1924. Probably they didn't, but there's a possibility they did. And then subsequent to that, you you have Tenzing Norgay and uh, and Edmund Hillary in, I think, is it 1953, reaching the summit. But, you know, those early expeditions up Mount Everest very much tied in with this idea that you conquer the mountain. It's sort of, it's a sort of imperial project and you have these giant expeditions of frozen food and champagne and explosives and fireworks and you, you spend a a year doing the trip. You know, he he's really the instigator of that. I mean, I think without his extraordinary sort of energy and determination and his fundraising, those early um, attempts to climb to the summit of Everest probably would not have happened. Your book is called The Last Great Imperial Adventurer. What is it about the times that change such that that 
no longer became a thing. We still do adventures, but they're not the same in, in that way. The fact that he manages to span the period from the 1860s, so you know, he was only born six years after the 1857, the, the great uprising or rebellion or, or mutiny, where his father and his uncle, they're part of that sort of colonial power. He, he goes from that era to 1942 when he dies in World War II, espousing the idea of free love, definitely in favor of Indian nationalism, thinking that he may be the father of the new messiah or the godchild, to use the, the phrase that he used. He somehow encapsulates this late Victorian or late imperial project, which at times was, was, was eccentric and you know, very, very strange and very, very different to a lot of our ideas about how that period might seem from this distance of time. That aspect of him that was, to me, most engaging, and that there was a sense of anything could happen, you could do anything. To be an adventurer in that sense was possible in a way that it probably wasn't after the middle of the, let's say, the middle of the 20th century. And also it's probably connected to the fact that a lot of landscape was unknown, it's amazing to look at young husband's maps in his archives and realize that he and others were literally drawing out spaces on a map. They were going from place to place. They were looking at the position of certain stars and mountain peaks and then saying, you know, we, we can fill in this blank space. So I think that in itself meant that you could do things that today you couldn't do. And of course, today, you know, if you went to that same area, you would be able to locate yourself. You'd have GPS. Uh, so you would you'd almost certainly know where you were. Whereas at that time, you might disappear off for month after month and nobody would know where you are. It's really incredible to think that just 150 years ago, there were vast swaths of territory without maps. And now you can spin the Google Earth globe and mm. zoom in down to the resolution of individual people sometimes just about anywhere in the world. And even just uh, so 25-ish years ago. That is exactly what is what is so extraordinary about it. The fact that now you can see from the sky that level of detail. And even, you know, what I'm thinking actually now, as, as, as I'm remembering it, is the thing of what you can see or what you can know was so different. Even when I went to do the research for this book, which was the very beginning of the 1990s. So, for example, uh, when I went, actually a little bit earlier, at end of the 80s, when I went to, to China and to parts of Tibet, I can remember the experience of meeting people who had never seen a picture, a photograph, or a video of somebody who physically looked very different to themselves. And I remember that thing of being followed in the street by crowds of people and being stared at because you were such an aberration. And yet now, you know, not very many years later, the technology means that everybody all over the world can see people from all over the world, whether or not they actually meet them face to face. Yeah, we, we no longer have very many spaces uh, on Earth or maybe even more abstractly that you could mark as there be monsters. Mm, mm, mm. So let's talk just a bit about the mystical side of Young Husband. He was extremely active throughout his life. He was a prolific writer and also organizer. And throughout much of his later life, he focused on projects related to religion and mysticism. Maybe you could start by explaining that term, which we don't use very often nowadays, mysticism. Right, yes. He was somebody who came out of a strict Protestant evangelical background of a kind which was quite common among, um, let's say, British imperial or military servants in these countries around the world. There was very often a kind of um, religious element to the imperial project that they were engaged in. He was looked after as a child by two aunts who... I think, uh, you know, would sort of beat him if he if he transgressed in, a, in any way. So 
you know, that was his stern, strong Christian background. He then became very interested in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Islam, in Judaism. He, he studied other religions in quite a lot of detail. Whenever he went somewhere, he would seek out religious leaders to try to understand the tradition, that you know, the different religious tradition that they might uh, come out of. He founded an organization in the 1930s called the World Congress of Faiths when he hoped that different religions might come together and say, well, what is the common divine element that brings us all into one? He was very interested in things like the Parliament of Religions in Chicago in, I think, 1893, this idea that for the first time, major religions from all over the world would come together and 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 unite around a kind of common mystical spiritual idea of God. The principle being that, you know, it doesn't matter what you call God, you're, you're still believing in something similar to what I'm believing in. Of course, we can, we can say in retrospect, well, that was hugely idealistic and impractical because there are all sorts of different re- religious traditions flourishing in the 21st century when people are very definite that they've got nothing in common with the other religion you know so it even ties into ideas of identity politics that you partly define yourself by the identity that you oppose or the religious tradition of someone else that you think is an aberration and i think that the term mysticism which was used quite a lot in the sort of early part of the 20th century although it goes prior to that and after that was orientated around this idea that there was some divine principle which people who had followed religious traditions or who had for example meditated in a in a snowbound cave in the himalayas might have discovered the idea that you might have made some kind of mystical realization which was then potentially going to liberate other people and he was a big believer in that and there were a lot of people who he knew and who he corresponded with who they you know they might be indian they might be french they they came from a lot of different countries, but they sort of gravitated to Young Husband when he was in old age. And he sort of imagined that if this idea of the divine could be shared between enough people, that humanity as a whole would move forward into some kind of new realm. And one of the ideas that he became very keen on towards the end of his life was actually the idea that there were extraterrestrial or superterrestrial beings on a planet which he called Altair. And his idea was that beings on the planet Altair were sending kind of cosmic vibrations down to Earth. And they were controlling our thoughts and they were controlling what we were doing. And his logic for that was saying, you know, how likely is it that humans are the only uh, intelligent species in the universe? Isn't it likely that there must be life on other planets and we must in some way be in communication with them and then out of it came this idea of you know could he potentially be the father of the new messiah with the aid of of his friend madeline lease so it was kind of off the wall and highly eccentric and yet at the same time uh it's funny because i remember i remember when i first read in i guess the 1980s or 90s his ideas about life on other planets thinking that it was very unlikely whereas in fact you know we know as of this week that there is water on the surface of the moon and the prospect of exoplanets and the prospect of intelligent life in other parts of the universe now seems rather more likely than it did when I was writing Young Husband, The Last Great Imperial Adventurer and publishing it in 1994. It's interesting how Young Husband seems to be throughout his life and the many different adventures and changes both of his time, but then often ahead of his time, and then often kind of on the sidelines of history mm. as someone who's a little bit too early or whatnot, as in with Everest, if he had been the later excursion, he might have become a household name. Right. Instead, he's almost like a, in some ways, like a Forrest Gump character <laughs> who just keeps popping up, but you might not necessarily notice him right, until yeah. you do. I do actually think with the, with the writing of biography, that often the most interesting biographies are not, you know, reading another biography of uh, JFK or another biography of Hitler. It's more the, the slightly peripheral figures who do take a Forrest Gump role and who can really tell you a lot about the social history of a particular period and you know one of the reasons that i love biography as a form and i went on from young husband to do the the biography of the nobel laureate vs naipaul and now writing the biography of another nobel laureate doris lessing 
is that through looking at the emblematic long life of one individual who meets a load of people and does a lot of very different things and goes to different places, you almost get this kind of larger global social history, which helps to explain that era. Because the the idiosyncrasies of one person and their friends and their family can tell you more than maybe, let's say, a larger study of economic history, for example. Before we wrap up here, tell the listeners what you are working on right now, if you can. Oh, so yeah, so the, the, the biography of Doris Lessing, she is the, the first and so far the only British woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. She was somebody who lived during the early part of her life in southern Rhodesia, what's now Zimbabwe. She became a communist. She got married, got divorced, got married, got divorced, gave up being a communist, became an anti-communist, became a feminist and published books like The Golden Notebook, then turned anti-feminist, became a Sufi, uh, followed all sorts of different ideas in a very organic way, and published, you know, really book after book of very different kinds, including some very interesting space fiction, again, rather like Young Husband, looking at what could be going on on other planets. And so that's the kind of large project that I'm now coming towards the the end of. So that will be called The Golden Woman, the authorised biography of, of Doris Lessing. And I've also got another project which I will go back to after that, which is looking at the way that the post-colonial period unfolds in different countries around the world. And what interests me is what comes after post-colonialism. So in other words, if you look at a country like India or Pakistan or Egypt and the period immediately after independence when people are often very optimistic and idealistic about what kind of new nation is going to be built, there's then a follow-on when you get some kind of reaction or backlash and it's the period that, that follows the post-colonial period that interests me. So those are two very large book projects that I am doing at the same time as being the Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences at Ahmedabad University, which is in the west of uh, India in Gujarat, and also Professor for the Public Understanding of the Humanities, because I really feel that now, you know, when so much around the world is being changed by technology, being changed by climate being changed by covid that the the power of the humanities and the power of the arts and the power of different kinds of creative invention are really central to the sort of opportunities the the sort of lives that people can lead so i'm doing all of those different things in combination at the moment excellent they sound like very interesting projects i look forward to the books patrick thanks for coming on the filter well thank you matt Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.